Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast begins a special one-week, five-part series on the Monaco Memo. It's one of the most significant memos around the Department of Justice's thoughts on best practices, compliance, and actions you need to take during and after an enforcement action. Today, we have James Kukios, who's going to talk to us about his thoughts on the Monaco Memo. On Tuesday, we'll have Vin DiCiani. On Wednesday, my Radical Compliance co-host, Matt Kelly, joins me to take a deep dive into the weeds of the Monaco Memo. On Thursday, Hughes Hubbard partner, Laura Perkins, will visit with us. And we're going to conclude the week back again with Matt Kelly on the polite speech on the memo. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Susanna Hammond. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. Today, I'm thrilled to have back with me James Kukios, fellow U of M grad, Go Blue. And Go Blue. we're going to talk about the Monaco Memo. Say that three times quickly and see where you end up. James, first of all, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. James, we had two major announcements last week from the Department of Justice. The first that we're going to talk about a memo from Lisa Monaco, title of Monaco. Monaco memo, I already blew it. And then a speech by Kenneth Polite on Friday. But the Monaco memo had a lot of refinements, uh, had some additions, and it had some some changes. So maybe I could ask you to maybe step back and give an overall view of what you thought over all of that. And then we're going to go into some of the details of it. Sure. So I'd say two big reactions to it, Tom. Number one is I think it's great when the department puts out a memo like this that lays out very clearly what expectations are. Um, I think we've seen DOJ over its history has tried to do these things. It's been iterative. The Philip factors, for example, some early, ver- earlier things like the FCPA corporate enforcement policy. I think this is another one of those really helpful memos that sets out these are the factors that we're going to consider 
And here's what the implications of those factors are going to be. Number one, I think it's fantastic that they did this. Number two, this is a lot. I think that there's a lot more in this memo than there have been in some recent memos. It really does seem to institute a lot of changes, both at the high level and at the more granular level as well. So I think it's a very impactful memo that practitioners, compliance officers, people dealing in this space really should spend time reading and understanding. So let's maybe start with the memo is very well organized, I would say, and a clear first emphasis on individual accountability. What changes or even perhaps more importantly, refinements, James, did you see that the Monaco memo pointed towards greater individual accountability? Tom, I think you used the right word, refinement. The Monaco memo is more of a refinement of individual, the emphasis put on individual prosecutions as opposed to a major change. I, I think I'm a former prosecutor. We always wanted to go after individuals. I understand there was some question about that after the 2008 financial meltdown and the Yates memo in 2015 was a reaction to that. But but in in terms of the big changes, I see this more as a refinement or a tweaking to the Yates memo as as opposed to anything incredibly new. And I think a lot of it also reflects current practice. So for example, one of the big things the Yates memo had said to get full cooperation credit, you need to provide all relevant information about all people involved in potential misconduct. And that's not really different here. I guess the one difference in the Monaco memo is it emphasizes that information must be produced on a timely basis. And in fact, at one point, timely is underlined to show the emphasis of that. And the memo also says that cooperating companies should focus on priority evidence which includes information and communications associated with relevant individuals during the period of misconduct. And so prosecutors then should take, when you're negotiating a resolution, prosecutors should think, did did the company provide us with timely priority evidence during the investigation? To me, that's not much of a change in practice. As a prosecutor, I expected companies to do that. I expected them to provide me with evidence. We used to put in in the resolutions in the FCPA space, real-time cooperation. And I remember asking once, hey, boss, what does real-time mean in this instance? And it meant as the company found this information, they would provide it to DOJ. And so I think this really reinforces that practice more than changes anything, makes a a real change in direction. It's more of a making clear what expectations already existed, making it clear to everybody that's what they are. So for example, it can be difficult sometimes if you've already done the investigation and you come to DOJ with a with a packaged, this is what we, this is the allegation, this is what we did, and this is what we found. Obviously, that moment you're going to provide all the information at once, presumably. If it's one of those things though, where you report the allegation because it's so serious, but the investigation is not done yet. This can cause some issues along the line of, was I untimely in providing this information or did I not know it? And did I then, once I found out about it, provided it to you? That was already a discussion that was going on, but the Monaco memo does put the stakes a little bit, raises the stakes somewhat in that she makes clear that the company bears the burden 
of proving that it was timely and that the evidence was priority. Frankly, that's probably how it was already. But here, there's no no question that the company is going to have to bear the burden of showing it was timely and fulsome and priority cooperation. And I guess that means any tie goes to the government instead of to the company if there's a dispute on that. James, let me walk through this with you a little bit because I really had some questions in terms of the change or rather perhaps refocus on timeliness. So typically, maybe not typically is the right word, you get an allegation through your hotline. It comes in, formal report, comes into compliance, you triage it, determine you need to do preliminary investigation. You speak to the reporter, you take that to the general counsel's office, say we may have an issue here, we but we definitely need some legal investigation. General counsel in consultation with CCO or perhaps on their own decides we're going to investigate this internally. We're going to pick up the phone and call MOFO and then ask for James Kukios. We're typically now at some number of days and you get the call. They say, James, we need to speak with you tomorrow. Bring two or three associates, have passport packed. And you do, but you've still got to put an investigative plan. You've got to do some preliminary assessment to determine what the scope of your investigation is, or is that completely incorrect? And I guess what I'm trying to suggest is just by its own nature, an internal investigation takes time, but more importantly, in my experience, it takes time to do a competent investigation. And yes, you can immediately get information which may indicate illegal conduct, but almost never does someone just say, yes, James, I paid a bribe. It's because of your careful investigation. It's your studying of the documents. It's maybe not confronting a witness, but presenting questions to a witness, which would allow you to draw an inference that there's something potentially illegal here. And then you make a decision when to self-disclose. That I don't want to say it's a really a time-consuming procedure, but it does take some time to do it properly. And I'm concerned that process, you may just start, one person said, it's just like dropping hand grenades to catch, hmm. you don't do it catch fish that way. You drop a line and do it very controlled, managed way. Or is that, am I just off base with that concern? No, you raise a good concern. One, one question is always, do you complete the investigation and then bring it to DOJ? And you're right that if that's your choice, then is there going to be an argument that you were untimely because you took three months, six months, however long it took you to do that investigation that you did not disclose it timely? And so I think you're, it's a good point to be raised and a fair concern. I'm thinking of other situations, though. For example, you learn that there's going to be a newspaper article that is going to come out and accuse your company of corruption, for example. In those situations, ordinarily, you'd go to DOJ first. Even if you had, don't have an investigative plan yet or nothing you haven't put into place yet because you need to get ahead of that article. Or there's a, somebody you think is going to, a whistleblower you think may go to the government, but you need to get ahead of that before it happens. Or sometimes the government comes to you and says, hey, we received this allegation. Do you know anything about it? And if the answer is no, then you've got to investigate. And at that point, it's hard to say, how was I going to give you timely information at any point? Because I didn't know things up front. And so when is it timely that I bring it to you? So it does create complicated timing questions and things that you'll have to probably argue 
with the prosecutors at some point about whether this was timely or not. And you're right, it, it could cause issues even for well-meaning companies if a prosecutor thinks he should have brought this to me two months earlier or he should have brought this to me three months earlier or two weeks earlier, whatever it may be. It does make potentially cooperation credit less concrete in that regard as well. But I think these discussions were happening anyway. Prosecutors were saying, why didn't you get this to us earlier? And they always want things earlier rather than later. I was one of them. That's what I wanted also. And I think one one really important thing here is that the memo does talk about statute of limitations. And that is a significant consideration. Sometimes, especially FCPA cases, very well, the allegations may be several years old. It takes time, especially if you're on the government side, to get evidence from overseas. And so a lot of times there's an internal clock on these things. It's already it's already nine o'clock before you get these things. And you only have tw- until 12 o'clock to, to bring these, if I can use a clock metaphor for it. And so you know, there's obviously, especially in those cases, complex cases where that are already a little old and allegations come in, there's already a little bit of time pressure. And I think what the DAG is saying here, is you really, you can't put us in a pickle like that. You can't put us in a bind. You need to get this stuff to us as quickly as possible so that we can take actions to preserve our ability to go after individuals. Whether that be hurrying up and getting a search warrant out now instead of waiting six months or potentially an MLAT request that they could take years to to get responses to. And in the meantime, you may be able to seek a tolling order in appropriate cases. But I think the point is to try to get DOJ the information as quickly as possible so that they can have effective prosecution of individuals, which oftentimes can run against time pressures. So... I guess one of the things I've talked myself into is, as well as most people, the thing I say, the three most important things about a compliance program is document. It sounds like you also need to to document your decision-making process of the steps you took leading up to, certainly including your investigation, and also at what point did you make the decision to self-disclose? So that because the burden is on the company to demonstrate that, if you have a written record, perhaps that would help mollify the prosecutor you're sitting across the table from or demonstrate that you haven't engaged in good faith and you the, here were the decisions we made based upon the information we had at the time. That could be very useful to document those decisions, yes. James, let me turn to the guidance on corporate accountability And this is a follow-up from the Lisa Monaco speech of October 2021 that we had the opportunity to visit on uh, extensively. And this, I think, caused more consternation in the white-collar defense bar as any other part of uh, her speech back in October. So what did you see in this portion of the Monaco memo that either ameliorated some of the concerns you've had or you've heard others have? Yeah, I thought that, I think we talked about it back in October, Tom, I thought that the discussion of corporate recidivism was the most significant part of the DAG's October 2021 speech, really because this was an issue that companies always wrestled with. If we had a prior antitrust problem or if we had a prior environmental problem, but now we have an FCPA problem, do those count? Are we going to be looked at less favorably or is it because it's a completely different subject matter? It's like a restart. And the DAG wasn't very clear in October of 2021 exactly how that was going to, going to happen. What factors were they going to evaluate? How are they going to look at those different areas? Things like that. She said it didn't matter. It didn't have to be the same subject matter, but 
what does that really mean? If you've got an environmental matter, is it really at all relevant to an FCPA matter? It's hard sometimes to say it does. And so people were wondering exactly how she was going to weigh that, how prosecutors should weigh that, what was going to happen. We've seen over the last couple of months, a couple FCPA enforcement actions, for example, that have dealt with that, that have said, for example, that civil resolutions were of less weight than criminal resolutions. So that was a data point. And I'd expected that it would just play out over time through enforcement actions. We'd be able to glean these things. But I think what this memo really does, it actually takes that on directly and has a very nice discussion, I think, about how prosecutors should look at these things. The, for me, the most important sentence in this section is that not all instances of prior misconduct are equally relevant or probative. And then it goes on to discuss when prior conduct will be more relevant and more probative and when it will be less relevant and less probative. And they make sense. The things that, that the factors that then follow that to me make a lot of sense. So for example, recent US criminal resolutions are weighted higher than old non-US civil resolutions. That makes complete sense to me. I think that it's also helpful to a company trying to decide what is my prior history going to, how is it going to affect my resolution? Similarly, prior misconduct involving the same personnel or the same management is going to be weighed more as more probative or more relevant than something that's very old and involving different people. So to me, this is an extremely important part of the memo that I think is going to be very helpful for companies and practitioners in trying to decide what type of penalty the company might face. And importantly, especially for me, what the dialogue is going to be with prosecutors when you're trying to resolve a case. Right now, at the end of when you're done investigating, when all the all that is dry and it's time you're going to have a resolution with DOJ, the last several months is a discussion about compliance programs and the Philip factors. And usually that Philip factors presentation in particular, you actually take the Philip factors and you do a PowerPoint and you say, here's Factor one, here's how we line up against it. Here's factor two, and here's how we line up against it. I think you're going to see a very similar dialogue now and a very similar process now for prior misconduct history for a company. You're going to have these factors laid out, and you're going to say this weighs in favor of us, this weighs against us. And you're going to have a, a submission probably to DOJ that, that deals with these factors. And I think it's really helpful because you're, we now have a common dialogue with prosecutors to say, hey, it's not us saying this doesn't matter or it's not us saying this does matter. It's your boss. The DAG is saying this. We have a common language. Let's use it. Let's talk about it and figure out how our prior history should factor into this resolution. So for me, this is probably the most important, if at least certainly one of the most important parts of the memo. So, James, within the context of corporate accountability, I really heard two different types of accountability. One was prior misconduct, but you also mentioned the management team. And I'm going to really expand that to compliance culture or corporate culture or practices, because I saw some very interesting and I thought significant language in one paragraph. And I think it's so significant. I'm just going to read it. It says, department prosecutors should also evaluate whether the conduct at issue in the prior and current matters reflects broader weaknesses in a corporation's compliance culture or practices. 
One consideration is whether the conduct occurred under the same management team and executive leadership. Overlap in involved personnel at any level could indicate a lack of commitment to compliance or insufficient oversight of compliance risk at the management or board level. Beyond personnel, prosecutors should consider whether the present and prior instances of misconduct had the same root causes. Prosecutors should consider what remediation was taken to address the root causes of prior misconduct, including employee discipline, compensation clawbacks, restitution, management restructuring, and compliance upgrades. It would not be unusual to have the same executive leadership or board level leadership on an earlier action, whether it was FCPA or other. So that was one thing I wanted to ask you about. And it also really went down into the kind of the weeds by talking about employee discipline, compliance clawbacks, restitution, management restructure, and program upgrades. Is that something typically you would look at? And if so, how would you do it? Yeah, I think this is very interesting, Tom. Good point that you raised this. I think what they're really getting at is this a company, going back to all the recognition that DOJ and SEC also have had that even the best compliance program can't catch everything. Is this a situation where where you just had a miss despite your best faith efforts? Or is this a company that really has a more ingrained problem? So I think, for example, that's one of the reasons to look at the management is the management is the reason the company is having this pro- a problem again, because they have bad management who doesn't care about it. Or is it actually they have good management that despite their best efforts, it's fallen through. Same thing for root causes. One of the worst things that any prosecutor can see happen is you resolve something with a company and let's say it's not throwing the book at them. It's a deferred prosecution agreement or a non-prosecution agreement. And then they come back in front of you with the exact same problem. That's just, that's embarrassing personally, but also programmatically, what we tried to do did not deter crime. And so that's why looking at the root causes, did the company already know they had this problem? Did they look into it and did they do something about it? And it just wasn't done right or just missed, or did they just not care? Did they see the root cause and they just let it happen? So I think that's why they're looking at these things about did you change the management because the management was the problem? Did you discipline the employees because the employees were the problem? Did you do the compliance upgrades that you needed to do because of these problems? And I think, so to summarize, I think what they're really getting at, is this a problem in the company's culture or is it just one of those situations where they have a good culture, but you just can't prevent everything from going wrong? James, all of this really needs leads to my next series of questions, but it's also the next section in the Monica memo, and that's about self-disclosure. I often hear people like you and corporate compliance professionals say that the decision of whether or not to self-disclose is one of the most difficult that they could face. In the context of the Monica memo, if a company does have a prior FCPA violation, is the decision now even more difficult on whether to self-disclose or do you use uh, incentives baked into the Monaco memo, which would allow at least allow you to consider recommending uh, a self-disclosure for a company that will become a recidivist? First, I agree with you 100%. Self-disclosure is probably the hardest uh, question that any company can have because once you self-disclose, it's, you lose control over the narrative and you lose control over the investigation and 
people can start digging places you didn't expect and finding things that you didn't expect. And it's very difficult. On the other hand, DOJ says there are real benefits to self-disclosure. And so you don't want to miss out on those as well. So that's a, it's a very difficult calculus to make. For FCPA, I don't see the Monaco memo changing things very much because really what, because of the FCPA corporate enforcement policy is already in place and already sets out a system to try to reward self-disclosure. And the Monaco memo really is saying for other DOJ components who don't have something like the FCPA corporate enforcement policy or who don't have something like the antitrust divisions policies, you need to put something in play and you need to make sure that there is a tangible benefit to a company for self-disclosing. So I think, I guess, if you're asking about FCPA in particular, I see it as an equipoise. I think this is really potentially going to be a bigger deal if you're dealing with a non-FCPA, non-antitrust, also um, cited in the memos, the National Security Division's policy on export control and sanctions enforcement, and the uh, ENRD factors and decisions on criminal prosecutions. If you're dealing with a subject matter outside of FCPA, antitrust, export control, or environmental um, regulation, then I think it might have a very big impact on self-disclosure. The big question, Tom, I think, and it goes back to my original point is, are the incentives ever going to be enough or clear enough for a company to say self-disclosure is the way to go? And sometimes it may be, But like the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, this policy leaves caveats for aggravating factors. Just like the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, it says that there will be a presumption that the department will not seek a guilty plea when a company has voluntarily self-disclosed, fully cooperated, and timely and appropriately remediated the criminal conduct, absent the presence of aggravating factors. And that you need that in our system. You need to have that caveat. We don't have a strictly rule-based system where, you know, if X, then Y. We have a system of prosecutorial discretion that involves factors. And we try to calibrate in our system, for better or for worse, we try to calibrate each case on its own merits. And the biggest, it's a philosophical question. It's a question I think is really just maybe impossible to answer, which is how can you ever preserve flexibility for the Department of Justice, but also provide the kind of concrete predictability that companies want? And I don't think that this, the Monaco memo really changes that too much for, especially for FCPA practitioners, but they seem to have decided, the department seems to have decided that there was some benefit in having an FCPA corporate enforcement policy-like approach that even though you have to have those, the weighing of those flexibility versus predictability, the department seems to have said, this, is, this trade-off is working pretty well in the FCPA corporate enforcement space, and we're going to need to have it for all of our components going forward. And it's a good question. I, I don't know if the FCPA corporate enforcement policy got it. And so I don't know if the Monaco memo gets it right, because I know of companies who want to do the right thing but feel like there's not enough benefit. And in fact, there's some maybe detriments from the FCPA corporate enforcement policy. The preliminary discussion in this memo says that DOJ talked to parties that they discussed public interest with, discussed these issues with public interest groups, with consumer advocacy organizations, with 
compliance and ethics experts, with academics, with audit committee members, in-house attorneys, and former corporate monitors. And presumably, they received positive feedback on I'd really love to see some kind of more rigorous academic-type analysis of how what impact this has actually had and whether this is going to impact it going forward. I don't know if you can do that because there's so little data, really, but maybe some kind of survey of general counsels and compliance officers and CEOs to see what they think. But DOJ seems to have felt that that trade-off they have now is a, a good one and that they need to do it for all kinds of crimes, not just the FCPA. James, the next area I wanted to explore with you is the remarks around the evaluation of companies' compliance programs. And there's a reiteration of the factors that were articulated in the evaluation of corporate compliance programs document and the update. So I don't want to focus on those, but there were two ones that were specifically emphasized. And the first was compensation structures that promote compliance. And then the second was use of personal devices and third-party applications. And I wanted to start with, did you see anything new or different in either of those? And what intrigued you the most about DOJ raising those two points? Yeah, so DOJ has said for a long time that you need to focus on both disincentives and incentives for proper behavior by employees. So you either punish bad behavior or you reward good behavior. And they say that again in this document. The one really big focus in this document is on compensation clawback provisions. And I, to me, that's new. Not that it's never been discussed before, but the amount of emphasis that this memo puts on compensation clawback provisions is really striking. And so there, it's, there's a clear preference now that DOJ is articulating that they want companies to put into their uh, employment agreements or compensation agreements that there can be clawbacks for illegal conduct. And DOJ seems to see that as a powerful disincentive to illegal conduct. Interestingly to me is that this is not going to be the last word on this topic because the memo also says that the DAG has asked the criminal division at Maine Justice to develop further guidance by the end of the year on how to reward corporations that develop and apply compensation clawback policies. And the idea here is to shift the burden away from shareholders to employees who are more directly responsible. So I think in some ways, there's a clear preference now. DOJ is saying, we want you to have clawback provisions, but there's a little bit of a stay tuned. We're gonna give you some more guidance on what we expect and how that will be rewarded going forward. So I don't think we have the last word in in this story quite yet, other than start thinking about clawback. And then the thoughts around personal devices and third-party applications. Anything? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I I thought this discussion on the use of personal devices and third-party applications was very helpful from a compliance perspective. When the FCPA corporate enforcement policy first came out a couple of years ago, there was a very black and white. It was almost a, thou shalt not allow your employee, thine employees to use personal email messaging devices. And I think quite rightly, there was a lot of reaction to that, especially in some countries with China, Brazil. Daily life is conducted on third-party messaging platforms and saying that they're off limits is really impractical in some places. And so there was some pushback and, and to the department's credit, to the criminal division's credit, they backed off on that a little bit and said, okay, but you still need to do something about it. I feel like this 
Monaco memo actually gives a pretty concrete baseline of what companies should do. And just like you read earlier, Tom, I'm going to read from it here because I think it's very helpful. It says, as a general rule, all corporations with robust compliance programs should have effective policies governing the use of personal devices and third-party messaging platforms for corporate communications, should provide clear training to employees about such policies, and should enforce such policies when violations are identified. So we have a pretty clear baseline here. You need to have a policy. You need to let your employees know what that policy is, and you need to enforce that policy, which I think is actually a pretty realistic and helpful standard to set out that was lacking before. I think it still leaves some some room for companies to take a risk-based approach and to see how their company actually uses devices and messaging systems. But it's a pretty clear baseline of what the compliance expectations are that I think that compliance officers can use to build off of. The one other thing that they add here is that um, prosecutors should also consider whether a corporation, once they've been alerted to potential misconduct, has done enough to preserve and collect data from personal devices and third-party applications. And from an investigative standpoint, that really does say, (laughs) when I started, people, as a prosecutor, people had moved off. Like They used to send bad emails on their company email accounts. And they realized, oh no, people can get that. So they switched over to Hotmail and Gmail and Yahoo. And we had a field day with those because people didn't realize that you could get search warrants for those. And then people realized, oh no, I can, the government can get those too. I might, I have to move to these other ways. And I think we're in that, in a world now where people use personal devices, they use third-party messaging, both to commit crime and to do daily business and daily life. And this is a recognition that we, it's not enough in, in, in most cases, probably in DOJ's opinion, to just collect emails and just collect company side stuff. But you need to consider and think about, hey, do I also need to preserve and collect personal device data and third party data? Again, easier said than done. Things like Signal and Snapchat and things like that may not be possible still, but DOJ is making it clear that this is something that you need to consider when you're investigating a potential allegation of potential misconduct. Well, James, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I wanted to thank you for taking the time to visit with me. We're going to link to your profile on MoFo in our show notes if anyone has any questions or wants to follow up. And I think this is something we'll be talking about down the road. I think you're right, Tom. Thanks for having me on to talk about this really important memo. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this special episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. This episode starts a week where we're going to take a deep dive into the Monaco memo and talking to various experts and commentators. Tomorrow, we're going to have Vin DeCiani, founder of Affiliated Monitors, to visit with us about the monitorship component of the Monaco memo and the changes that are laid out in this memo. It's got a lot of implications for the compliance professional. So I hope you will listen to this special episode tomorrow with Vin DeCiani on the Monaco memo. This special presentation of the FCPA Compliance Report is a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.